we're just saying uh, from the chalice in his hand, and I'm wondering if everyone knows what the word chalice means, but in case you don't, it's a cup. So the psalm is talking about a cup of which holds God's wrath. Let's now take our Bibles. I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me, first of all, to the psalm which we just sang from Psalm 75. We're going to read the entire psalm together. It's a psalm which gives us background to help us to understand the suffering of Christ. Psalm 75, to the chief musician set to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks. For your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I also will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. Let's now turn to the New Testament to the book of Matthew. First read Matthew chapter 20 verse 20 to 28. The book of Matthew, we'll read Matthew 20, beginning of verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. That's Jesus. And Jesus said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant." And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's now jump ahead to chapter 26 in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll read verse 20, chapter 6, verse 26 to 46. This is just before Jesus approaches the cross and he's celebrating the final meal with his disciples. 
Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And said to the disciples, sit over here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away, away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So far from God's holy word. Let's now also read from the church's confession, the Belgic Confession, Article 21. Belgic Confession, Article 21, you can find that on page 507 in your books of praise. There we read about the satisfaction of Christ, our High Priest. Belgic Confession, Article 21 and here we confess as the church, we believe that Jesus Christ was confirmed by an oath to be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He presented himself in our place before his father, appeasing God's wrath by his full satisfaction, offering himself on the tree of the cross where he poured out his precious blood to purge away our sins as the prophets had foretold. For it is written, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and was numbered with the transgressors. 
and condemned as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, though he had first declared him innocent. He restored what he had not stolen. He died as the righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered in body and soul, feeling the horrible punishment caused by our sins, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Finally, he exclaimed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All this he endured for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, we justly say with Paul that we know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We find comfort in his wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means of reconciliation with God than this only sacrifice, once offered by which the believers are perfected for all times. This is also the reason why the angel of God called him Jesus, that is, Savior, for he would save his people from their sins. Well, this afternoon we're going to be looking at what we confess as a church in Lord's Day 15, so I invite you to turn there, Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find that on page 529 in your book of praise. Lord's Day 15, and there we find these words. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes, thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, have you ever wondered why Christianity is represented with the symbol of a cross? If you drive past the church here, you see that there's a big cross on the front of the building. You see crosses in almost every church you go to. Many people like to wear a cross as part of their jewelry. And we also sing hymns about the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, or the old rugged cross, or this is the power of the cross. Why is the cross the symbol for our Christian faith? Because if you think about it, the cross is somewhat of a a strange symbol, isn't it? What happened on a cross? Well, a cross represented a cruel and, and painful death. On the cross, that's where crucifixions happened. If you study history, then... Maybe you've heard about the Roman method of of crucifying people. 
The Romans were especially known for brutal execution on the cross. Someone said that crucifixion was probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced. There was a Roman writer, Cicero. He said, To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. But to crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. That was the Roman writer Cicero, and he was writing that from the time. So death on the cross, that was a a cruel, a painful, a bloody, a gory death. So how did the cross that represented that brutal death, how did that become the symbol of Christianity? Jews have a star. Muslims have a crescent. Buddhists have a lotus flower, but Christians have a cross. Why is that? Well, this afternoon as we investigate the suffering of Christ, his death on the cross, we'll see that his death was no ordinary death. His crucifixion was no ordinary crucifixion. Because far more than the physical reality of Jesus' death was the spiritual suffering that he endured. Because he endured, on the cross, he endured the wrath of God against our sin. His suffering was far more than a physical reality. The Bible gives the image of a cup, a cup of God's wrath that Jesus drank when he was on that cross. A cup full of the wrath of God. And so I'd like to summarize the message this afternoon this way. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for me. We'll see the content of the cup, the consumption of the cup, and then the communion of the cup. So what was in that cup? This is the first question we're going to be looking at. We're in Lord's Day 15, and the Catechism is describing the Apostles' Creed. It's going through the Apostles' Creed. And last week, we began to investigate the humiliation of Christ. His humbling to become a man. You remember last week, we saw that Jesus crossed the greatest distance from God. He became a man. The Creator became a creature. Holy God came to live with unholy people. This was a huge step of humiliation, and Jesus took this step as he came to be with us. Fullness of God came in helpless babe. But Jesus' humiliation continues, and that's what we're going to be looking at this week, where we see that he suffered. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. That's the part of the creed we're going to be looking at this afternoon. And to give some insight into into Jesus' suffering, we read from, from his prayer in the garden. In his prayer, we, we read that as Jesus went to the garden, just before he went to the cross, Matthew 26, 37 says that he was sorrowful and distressed, deeply distressed. The words here give a picture of deep emotional pain. He says to his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. That's the sort of sorrow that he's experiencing. As he looks forward to the cross and the, the experience on the cross that he knows he's going to experience, he's deeply in, in deep immersion, emotional turmoil. And so he prays this heart-wrenching prayer. He says, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away from me. This cup pass away from me. Well, what was in that cup? What was in that cup that Jesus dreaded so much? Well, the first thing that we can say is that there was far more than just a physical suffering. Because there has been many other 
men and women who have suffered a similar degree of physical punishment. Think of martyrs who have died for their faith. Martyrs, perhaps you've heard stories of martyrs as they went up to the cross and they were singing hymns, they were courageous, they were eager to die for their Lord. They considered it an honor to die for Jesus. They weren't sorrowful like Jesus was. They weren't dreading the cup, but they looked forward to that day when they would be with Jesus. They were eager. We get a very different picture here of Jesus as he approaches his death than the martyrs. So we have here much more than just a physical suffering. And to help us to understand what was in this cup, it's helpful to understand the Old Testament background. Because the Old Testament talks about a cup which holds God's wrath. Here's a couple of verses. Psalm 11 verse 6 says, Let God rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. All of these things were in the cup of the wicked that God was going to pour out on them. Fire, sulfur, a scorching wind. And we sang from Psalm 75 and we read from that too. Psalm 75 says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to their dregs. I'm going to be looking at Psalm 75 a little bit more. So if you have your Bibles open, that would be helpful. Psalm 75, it it gives a picture of God as the supreme judge. God is carrying out his perfect rule over this world as the judge. And the psalm is probably written after after the Israelites have been delivered from Sennacherib. Perhaps you remember King Hezekiah was king in Jerusalem. And then Sennacherib came from Assyria and surrounded Jerusalem with his army. And then you remember the Rabshiki taunting taunting Hezekiah and saying, can your God save us? We've just defeated all these other countries. Can your God save us? But then you remember the miraculous, the miraculous deliverance that God gave when an angel of the Lord came and killed 175,000 people all around the city. Well, this is probably the context that Psalm 75 has written. God has just given a miraculous delivery to his people and destroyed the wicked Assyrians. And so we read in verse 3 that the earth and all its inhabitants dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. So God is the one here who holds the pillars of the earth. But in the Bible, judgment is sometimes described as God shaking the earth. For example, in Haggai 2, God says, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. God gives the picture of shaking as a picture of judgment. And as the one who holds the foundations of the earth, the pillars of the earth, he is the one who is able to do this. God has chosen a day for judgment, and one day he will shake the earth terribly. And further, this psalm also gives a warning to those who are in control. Verse 4 and 5 says to the boastful, Do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. So God says to those who think they're in control, actually, I'm the one in control, so you cannot boast. And this is the the context that we read about the cup of God's wrath in verse 8. God is the powerful judge. He is the one who is going to force the wicked to drink from this cup and to drain it to the dregs. His wrath is a terrible wrath. It cannot be escaped. This is the cup that Jesus was dreading in the garden it's a terrifying cup of god's wrath his judgment against the wicked 
And that's why Jesus was sweating drops of blood in the garden. And that's why he prayed so fervently, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. It shows, that prayer really shows how difficult it was and how much it filled Jesus with anguish as he considered the reality of the cross. Because this is what happened on the cross, that Jesus drank that cup, the cup that was full of God's wrath against the sin of all of the wicked, the cup, that terrifying cup that we read about from Psalm 75, Jesus drank that on the cross. And he drank it for the sin of the whole human race. Catechism says on the cross, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Now the Catechism says that it's the sin of the whole human world. And we also need to consider that it's also our sin, which Jesus drank in that cup. Because it's easy for us to blame other people. You say it was the Jews, it was them. They crucified him. They're the ones who said, crucify him. Well, it's true, it was the Jews. We could say it was Pilate. He was the one who gave him the sentence. It's true, it was Pilate too. Or we could say it was Judas. He was the one who betrayed him and sent him to the cross. Well, it was all of them. But brothers and sisters, we need to come to the cross and say that it was also me who did it. It was my sin of of self-love, my sin of rejecting God's rule for my life, desiring my honor and fame more than God's, finding other gods to worship. It was my sin that compelled Jesus to die. It was my sin that was in that cup of God's wrath that he drank on the cross. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. So what was in the cup? God's judgment against my sin was in the cup that Jesus drank on the cross. And brothers and sisters, doesn't this show us the seriousness of sin? The intense suffering of our Savior Jesus. It shows to us how seriously God takes our sin. John Stott says, Nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For if there was no way by which the righteous God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness, except that he should bear it himself in Christ, it must be serious indeed. The cross of Christ, when we consider the deep anguish and suffering that he bore, it shows to us the seriousness of our sin. So that's what was in the cup that Jesus dreaded, that he drank. And that's why we can say that Jesus' death was unlike any other death that has ever been, unlike any other crucifixion, that has ever been. No other human has died a death like this. That's what was in the cup. Let's also see how Jesus drank that cup. Because despite that that deep anguish that Jesus experienced in the garden, we also see a perfect submission to his Father's will. He said, not as I will, but your will be done. And we see this attitude of Jesus, his perfect submission. We see that throughout his entire life. And Catechism says that during all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end, during this whole period of his life, Jesus submitted perfectly to his father's will. We get a a little snapshot of this when he was 12 years old and when he was at the temple. Perhaps you remember that story 
they'd gone to the temple on their annual pilgrimage and then they went home and their father and mother went three days journey and then they realized that Jesus was missing. And then they realized that he'd actually stayed behind at the temple. And when they found him again, remember what Jesus said to his parents. He said, I must be about my father's business. So already as a boy, Jesus was concerned with his father's business, with learning his father's word and and learning his father's will. And as he read his father's word, Jesus spent a lot of time studying the Old Testament. And so he read about his own path of suffering that he would experience. For example, when he read from Isaiah 53, he was reading about himself as one despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When he read about the the sacrifice of the goat in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, he knew that he was that goat who would one day be sacrificed for sin. When he read from Genesis 22 about the sacrifice of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, when when Abraham found the ram to be sacrificed instead of Isaac, he knew that he was the ram who would be sacrificed instead of Isaac, instead of Israel, instead of us. And when Jesus read from Psalm 22, when he read that cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew that this was the forsakenness, the abandonment that he would experience on the cross. Jesus studied the Old Testament and he learned about his own path of suffering. And yet he never shrank from the suffering. He never shrank from the cross. Knowing the suffering he would bear, he always pressed forward. Luke 9.51 says that he set his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward that place where he knew he would experience that sort of suffering. We see this this firm resolve also in Matthew 16, when Jesus first predicts his death and suffering, and Peter gets a little bit upset, and Peter says, far be from it, you, far be it from you, Lord. But remember what Jesus said to Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan, You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So Jesus was firmly resolved as he walked on that way to the cross. And we also heard his prayer in the garden where he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. But then also that firm resolve, not as I will, but as you will. Even later on, when they, they were in the garden and Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus healed him and he said to Peter, Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Jesus was firmly resolved. He showed an unwavering commitment to the will of God for his life, to the suffering that he would endure. And that unwavering commitment, it led to the cross. It led to that place where he drank that cup, where he took the curse for your sin and for mine. Because that's what was happening on the cross. He took the curse. In the Old Testament, we hear that hanging on a tree was a sign of being cursed by God. And the apostles in Acts chapter 5, they understood that the cross represented a tree. They said, Jesus, whom you hung on a tree. And they understood that the cross was a reference to the tree in the Old Testament. When Jesus was on the cross, he was on the tree bearing the curse of God's wrath. And he drank that cup and he drank it to the dregs. He drank it right to the bottom for the full forgiveness of your sin and for mine. 
the Belgian Confession says that he appeased God's wrath by his full satisfaction. And Colossians 2 says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Just think of all of your sin nailed to that cross. God will never hold it against you again. Because Jesus is the only atoning sacrifice, as the Catechism says. And atonement was a way to bring two parties together. Remember last week when we saw the big gap between God and man, between the creator and the creature, but also between the holy God and and unholy people. A gap which Jesus first removed by becoming one of us, but now he has completely removed that gap by taking all of our sin, which was the barrier between God and us, and by taking it upon his shoulders, by drinking from that cup, by drinking it all right to the very dregs. And brothers and sisters, this is why Christianity still has the symbol of a cross. This is why, as Paul says, we proclaim the message of the cross and Christ and Him crucified. Because Jesus, on the cross, He drank the cup of God's wrath for me. And thus He has redeemed our bodies and souls from everlasting condemnation and has obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Isn't that amazing? Well, if the contents of the cup show to us the seriousness of sin, the consumption of the cup shows to us the love of God. The love of God that Jesus showed to us when he died, the love of the Father when he sent his Son to die for us. 1 John 4:10. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the only atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is the love of our Father. This is the determination that Jesus showed in his love for us by his firm commitment, his unwavering resolve. He was determined to love us right to the end, to the uttermost, to drink every dreg of God's wrath against our every sin. What a loving Savior and what a loving Father we have. And finally, let's see the communion of the cup. Maybe communion in the cup is something that intrigued you. Communion basically just means sharing. Because actually as believers, we all get to share in Christ's cup. We read from the Last Supper when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is is a memorial meal when we remember that death of Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus had that memorial meal first time with his disciples, he said, this is the cup which is my blood. Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But the cup that we drink from at the Lord's Supper table is not the same as the cup that Jesus drank from. Because the cup that he drank from had the wrath of God, but the cup that we drink from is the cup which remembers him. It's the cup of blessing. It's a sharing in his blood. Which means because we believe in his blood, because we believe that he has died for us, we don't have to bear the wrath of God at all. And in fact, drinking from the cup of Christ is also a confession of faith. When I drink from that that cup of the Lord's Supper table, we get to celebrate Lord's Supper hopefully in two weeks' time. 
When I drink from that cup, I'm saying, yes, Lord, I believe that your blood is sufficient for me. I believe that your blood was poured out for the forgiveness of all my sin. And so we, don't, we share from the cup of Jesus. But this is the cup of blessing. And so it's an assurance that all of our sin is dealt with. And because we rejoice to drink in this cup, the cup of Jesus' blood, we also rejoice to suffer for the sake of our Savior as we submit to Him and give our lives in service for Him. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, He said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus is quite clear. He says, If you want to follow me, you can expect that you're going to suffer. Christian life is not a, a life without suffering, but in fact, we can expect it. This is what Jesus said to, to the apostles James and John when they asked for honor and glory in his kingdom. And James and John were actually the first to experience this suffering. When there was a, a persecution in, in the early church, James was one of the first, the first martyr of the early Christian church in Acts 12 or 11. One of those. James experienced suffering for the sake of his Savior. And John also experienced suffering. Remember through the early chapters of Acts that we've been seeing that they've been persecuted, they've been beaten for their faith. And so when John addresses the churches in Revelation, he says, I, John, a fellow sharer in the tribulation of Jesus Christ. James and John, they suffered for the sake of belonging to Christ. They drank from the cup of Jesus' suffering. As, As Christians, we are also called to follow the footsteps of our Savior. 1 Peter 2 says, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you, so that you might follow in His footsteps. So we can expect that we will suffer for the sake of Christ. But brothers and sisters, this is a suffering which doesn't bring us the wrath of God, the suffering that Jesus experienced, but this is a suffering in which we can rejoice to identify with our Savior. Because as we identify with Him, we're drawn, as we suffer for His sake, we're drawn into deeper communion with Him. And so we can drink from His cup, we can drink from the cup of blessing, and we can have the full assurance that He has forgiven all of our sins, that He has drink and drank from that cup which we will never have to drink, the cup of the wrath of God. And we can have the full assurance that we stand before the Father. And we can look forward to that eternal life with Him. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside Jerusalem, a man was hung on a Roman cross. And for all of us here this, this afternoon, there are only two responses possible to that death. Either the cross is a stumbling block to you, or it is your salvation. Either the cross represents God's impotence to intervene into world history or it represents the greatest intervention in world history. Either the cross shows Jesus to be a failure, no more than a good man who died, or it shows him to be the greatest victor. The cross can only be one of these two things for you, a stumbling block or a salvation. Which is it to you? Amen.